Good morning, Olive Branch. It's great to see you guys. Thank you for uh, making this a part of your week and uh, for all of us getting together to serve each other to, in love and truth. We are in a series called Long Story Short, and we're talking about um, one book at a time. We're doing all the one-page books of the New Testament. So um, we've done a feat. For those of you who have been with us through this series so far, you've studied two whole books in two whole weeks. And so that's kind of, that's fun. And um, some of you guys in small groups have even been going through the books prior to this. And that's uh, been some interesting um, insights you guys have brought to my attention. And uh, this uh, today, we're also going to be going through a whole book of the Bible. So you get your whole Bible quota for the weekend. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you you guys still still kind of study the word on your own. But we're going to be doing 3 John. We're going to be looking at this conversation in this passage and continuing forward. So if you're a guest here, I want to welcome you. And you get this opportunity to actually study a whole book of the Bible. And um, it's an awesome opportunity. And thanks for being here. But we're, we're going to start off everything else before we really get into this with prayer. So would you join with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and asking that you would open your word, that you would open our hearts, and that we would be um, connected with that, and that your word would come through our lives as we learn to live it out and walk in your ways. And so we pray that you would enable us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, they'd been kicked out and they weren't even sure why. Standing outside of the church, standing outside of this, this villa in the first century as they're staring at what was their place of worship, their family, their community. They couldn't figure out why in the world they were now standing on the outside. They thought they'd done everything right. The apostles had sent the missionaries. They had welcomed them into their home. They had supported them like they thought they should. And next thing they know, their pastor and their elders had told them to get out. What blasphemy had they said? What, what doctrine had they ceased to believe? What was going on? And yet that's where some people had found themselves in the first century. And John was hearing about this. You can imagine when the apostle is hearing that there's somebody in the church who's denying that they have a, the apostles have any right over the churches, denying that they should even listen to these people. In fact, kicking people out of the church. You're going, this is nuts. What was going on? What was in the drinking water in that church? Well, that drinking water is, is present even in our day, honestly. Um, in fact, about 50 years ago, a man named Donald McGavern found himself on the mission field. Interesting man who was a, an evangelist. He had started off as a young boy hearing missionary stories in his own church, hearing about how people were coming to Christ. He got stirred and excited. And as a young boy you know, grew up, knowing he wanted to be a missionary. And so he headed on out to, um, to India and found himself through after seminary having having now a missionary opportunity. But his whole view of missions had been changed through seminary. He, he no longer thought it was about a message. He thought it was about helping people overcome their economic plight or enabling the, the medical needs of people who are in trouble. And, and he started this needs, needs meeting group in his denomination, and that's what his job was, as he did only that and only that. But after time, he started looking around at the other missionary organizations, seeing that, hey, turning Indians in India into westernized Christians wasn't really working because other churches were flourishing, other missions were growing, and he was wondering, what's the difference? And as he started to study that difference, Donald McGavern entered into what we know as the church growth movement. In fact, he's the founder of that thinking in many ways. And he was just trying to figure out what was it that was changing people. And he landed on one simple fact. It was the message that Jesus Christ had died on the cross to bear sins, rose from the dead to give new life, and ascended into heaven that we might have his presence and be part of his people. 
And it was this message we know as the gospel that was changing people and changing the world. And he began to see other aspects and pieces, but that was the central piece. And as he began to be more convicted about it and more sure that this was the message, his denomination simply looked at him and said, that's nice, you don't get to be a missionary with us anymore. And was moved out of his own missions organization. He stayed in India and worked a few more years. But ultimately, he had pretty much been told, because you believe in what the apostles have said, because you believe in the gospel and you think it changes lives, you go ahead and go try that on your own. It happens in our culture. It's a serious situation that is beginning to rise again. And so 3 John, which is not a book that most of us have ever really read very carefully, let's be honest with ourselves, is, a, is an interesting message to us today. And so what we're going to look at is this little book, this one, it's the smallest book in all of the Bible. And it's an opportunity for us to really kind of look at this letter. It's there, 3 John, if you want to grab your Bibles, I invite you guys to join with us, grab, open them up, take a look. It's on page 1000. 26 of the Bibles on the seats. If you just want to not have to run around looking for one page in all of your Bible, um, it's, it's kind of at the end of your Bible. So if you're kind of lost, you can find it right there. If you've got Revelation, go back. If you see maps, go to your left. And so if you see Hebrews, go to your right. It's, it's right there. It's one page, 3 John. And it's an interesting small little book. It was likely attached to 2nd and 1st John and sent to a very specific church. In fact, this is the most intimate book in all of the New Testament, in all the Bible, actually. It's written from John to a man named um, Gaius. And Gaius is naming people. And what you're getting is almost like this instantaneous, really personal look at the first century churches. Names are being mentioned and people are in situations are being brought up. And we're kind of having to reconstruct all that as we go in to it. And so a lot of people read this and they're like, why is this even in there? And yet there's a message contained in this that's important for the churches throughout history. And we want to make sure that we look at this because I think it'll challenge us. And so let's start off and see how it begins. It's right here, 3 John, beginning in verse 1. He says, the elder to beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is where we begin. John starts right off with this man named Gaius. And he says, Gaius, I am totally pumped about the fact that I'm hearing from these missionaries I sent to you. And they've come back to our church. And they've made this announcement of how you're walking in the truth. And, and in fact, this is John's point. In all three of his books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he calls the Christians to live in a way of truth and love. That This is an expression of life. In fact, last week we dove very clearly into this conversation. That there were some in the church that were all all focused on truth, so much that they, were, they weren't living in any form of love. It was all about the doctrines and the truths, and man, we're going to kick people out or whatever because this is our truth. Man, truth. And some of us are like that. We have a tendency to be truth-oriented. And then he's saying, but don't forget the love, that we're supposed to care about each other, love one another, he says. And he gives this command, and he calls us to that command. And there's many in the church today, actually, who are far more on this side, to the point where we love, and we love everybody, and we love everybody all the same. In fact, we, we ignore truth for the sake of love. Ah, we don't want to divide that. That seems unloving. That seems like it's going to hurt people. And yet what John reminds us is everybody who lives in the truth will love one another. It's an impossibility to divide the two. That truth and love are combined when it comes to Christianity because to live in a way of love to one another, you must believe that God has loved us first. 
that to know the truth that Jesus Christ has come to this earth, born our sins, risen from the dead to give us access to heaven. God has given so much, loved us so greatly. Shouldn't we know from that truth to live a love of each other, a love of one another, a love that is expressed in the love of God and the love of each other? And so very quickly, he says, this is what I, I love to see. I love you in truth. And I see that you're walking in the truth. And this is what I want to focus really quickly on again, that we would be this way. Because what you, what you have here is a very, very important thing. I, I love apples. Anybody an apple eater? I just love all kinds of apples. Fuji apples, you know, all pink ladies, whatever those things are. It's just... They're, they got weird names, but I just love apples. And one of these days, I was eating a Fuji apple, and I'm like, I'm just chewing on this apple, and I get to the center of the apple, and I'm looking at that thing, and I'm going, you know, this is really interesting. There's seeds in the center of this apple. I wonder what would happen. Are these, like, genetically modified apples? And have they been sitting around forever? So I took the seeds, and I put them in a Ziploc baggie with a, with a wet paper towel in there, and I just put them in the sunlight and left them out. And, and amazingly, one of them actually sprouted. And I'm like, whoa, I got a little, I got a little apple tree. So I, I, I let it grow a little longer, and then I put it in a, a little cup with some dirt, and it literally grew up and got stronger. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm growing an apple tree from an apple I ate. This is awesome. It's no longer alive. The drought killed it. But, the, uh, <laughs> but it reminded me of the reality of what someone once said. They said, what's the fruit of an apple? What's the fruit of an apple tree but an apple tree? Not just the apple. The fruit of an apple tree is an apple tree. Ultimately, the fruit of an apple tree is not the apple. It's the actual apple tree that grows because then it bears more apple trees. What is the fruit of living in truth and love? What is the fruit of the gospel except another person living in truth and love? The beauty of truth and love, when we live out truth and love as a church, is what happens is that's a seed that's planted in our souls. It's not just something everybody should do and we should institutionalize it. No, it's something that happens in your heart so that when you live in the truth and you know the truth and it comes out in loving one another, and when you love one another because you know that truth and they're locked together and impossible to separate, they birth in you a transformation. It bears up in you a a, a powerful living that is attractive to other human beings that changes other people's lives. And when you stop to think about it for a minute, this small seed is planted in our hearts through the gospel, and the gospel exists for something powerful, that in each person in this room is actually the capacity of a whole church. Do you ever realize that? That you're not just a capacity for one other convert, that God planted a powerful truth in your heart, that everyone in this room, if lived that and lived it in a way that God used it, you could literally each individually be a church, a group of people who love God and know God. We don't think of that as a potential in our hearts, but isn't that what God said the gospel does? It multiplies. It's like seed being scattered, transforms who we are. When we love other people because God loved us first, when we know that God loves these people and he's given his son for them, we're willing to get out there and tell them about it. It changes things. But even more, when we love each other, as this church does, at a James project, and we show up, and we start working on someone's yard, and we start painting some things, as, as people got to do, about 50 or 60 people came out yesterday and got to do yesterday. It was awesome. To watch people care for someone. When I hear the stories of your small groups going to each other when you're in a hospital because you've had surgery. Or showing up because you've had a a crisis in your home and they surround you and they listen and they care and they pray and they check in. They bring meals to your house because you're part of the women's ministry. Whatever it is. Guys, that's loving each other. That's amazing. You're pulling from 
the supply of your own life, your own time, in a busy culture, and you're saying, I care about you. I love you because God loved me first. I want to live this out. And that, guys, that is powerful. And when that happens on Sunday mornings, as we said, and we show up not to get, when you're here and you're here to get, you're in the opposite mode of what this is all about. When you live in truth and love, you're here to give. You're here to use your gift for somebody else. You're here to pray for somebody else. You're literally walking around in here. You're thinking right now in your mind, who in this room am I here for today? Who in this room am I here to pour into? Because I know it. some of you need to be poured into today. Some of you guys are here, you're like, I desperately need someone to pour into me. But if everybody in the room is here to say, I desperately need someone to pour into me and we never pour into anybody else, no one will be poured into. But when we come, even though you need to be poured into and you're willing to give it away, that is everybody pouring into everybody else. We leave overwhelmed with love, overwhelmed with truth, overwhelmed with direction. This is what Hebrews is getting at. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let's, let's cling to our faith. Let's cling to this truth. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You notice the symmetry here. That we encourage each other. We hold on to the truth that God has loved us. He's loved us with an incorruptible love. He's given us grace. And we're out here to give it away and pour into each other. And it spurs us on. It encourages us forward. I'll tell you what, guys. It's no more powerful thing than you've ever seen as a pastor or a staff member or a volunteer leader than to see you guys living your faith. Notice how John put it right here at the very end. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. About 10 years ago, or more now actually, I would sit across a young man named Brett. So sitting across from him, we'd be at Del Taco or we'd be at a, you know, some fast food restaurant because that's all you could afford as, as a youth pastor and, uh, and a student. And just having drinks, sodas over a really kind of mediocre curriculum on discipleship, but, it, you know, it was there. It was worth it, and we worked through it together, the basics, and then kind of got into some other things, and after about three or four months of hanging out together and really working through this material, um, you kind of, he gets up, and he kind of moves on to go do it with somebody else, and it was cool. It was neat to have this stuff work out, but eventually, Brett graduated, and Brett left, and it's the, worst, it's the scariest thing in the world as a, youth, as a youth pastor, to be honest. You see those people take off. You ever done youth work? It's that one point where you feel like a parent, and you're like only 20-something. You're like, I'm not old enough to feel like a parent, but this is ridiculous because they leave. It's all on them now. All the training, all the conversations, all the preaching goes, and it's left up to them. A few years later, I get a random email from Brett. And he's like, I'm living in Oregon. I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> what good can come from Oregon? No, just kidding. He's living in Oregon. And then he goes, and he's like, I'm at this awesome church. And I'm doing youth ministry. I want to talk to you about what it might mean if I did full-time ministry. I just love these kids. And I love doing this. And my wife, she, she loves doing this with me. And I'm just like, I'm reading this thing. And I call and we talk. And he's just all beaming and excited. I could have not eaten for a month. I was ready to do ministry forever because what happens when you see that one person you've poured into, take it and they're pouring into others, it ignites you. When the church is on fire, giving away love, doing what you guys are doing, and we hear the stories, and you guys are caring about one another and meeting each other's needs, the staff light up. The elders, they can't help but you just start busting out your guitar like, let's start singing or something because this is awesome. 
And then the volunteer leaders in your small groups, and everybody starts to get this fire. Like, what's going on? You feel encouraged because there's no greater joy. You want to hear people sing songs to God and worship him? You hear the stories about what God's doing in all these different people's lives. As we're living out the truth and love, as we allow the gospel to flow through us, and it transforms. And that's what John's saying. saying, you're pumping me up. I have no greater joy. I am thrilled with what's going on in your life, Gaius. I am thrilled with what's going on in our church, guys. We are seeing some amazing things. And then when you have that kind of an infectious attitude and excitement going on amongst us, what happens, you can't help but share it. And that's where John goes. He says, guys, we need to wind up partnering in the gospel. Now, some of you guys in the room may not actually be Christians, and you've heard about Christians, and we go around, we proselytize, we tell people why they need to be Christians, and you're like, hey, great, I'm going to listen to this. Well, let me just explain for a minute. I don't think we're that strange, to be quite honest, in this culture. I think Christians, when we know that this is the number one thing that changes people's lives, we get all excited about it because we love each other, and we see this stuff, we're all pumped up. That is very common for the American, because trust me, I've been through Monavi. Anybody been there? Right? Then, then I saw candles. Anybody have a candle party? You know, everybody had a candle party. Then, then we had some oil parties. Now we're having like, you know, it's all kinds of parties out there. All kinds of stuff you can buy. You get little, little bracelets and still, you know, it's like jewelry parties. You name it. We get pumped up about it. We see a need. We're like, we're throwing a party. And everybody gets together and says, oh, party, party, party. What are you selling me? Guess what? The church is the one place we say, let's gather together. Let's have a party. And guess what? You don't have to buy anything. We're giving it away for free. And it's the one thing that transforms human lives. If you've come in this room and you think that Jesus Christ has come, died on the cross to bear your sins, risen from the dead, and you've been saved, and you owe God something, you're in the wrong religion. You cannot pay God back. And he is not looking for you to pay him back. And when you come to the realization that God loves you that much, that he's given you the whole story, he's given you his son, he's borne your sins, he's forgiven you, he's opened heaven for you to free, this is not a debt situation. This is a kid just going, Dad, you're amazing. Your heart is so motivated and so moved that you want to love God. And so we go out endorsing the mission. John gets into this, he says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers. These brothers is the term for missionaries, these guys he sent from his home. And he says, strangers as they are, you don't even know these guys, they testify to your love before the church. And you'll do well to send them on the journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He says, guys, it's so cool. They partnered. They went out and you partnered with them. You gathered them together. You loved on them. And the, the response for us is, that, yeah, we too, from this great gospel, should partner in, in it. Now, that's two ways to do that. Number one, we should be ambassadors. We, we should be the kind of people who go next door, who tell our friends next door, tell our coworkers about this wonderful news. Man, this is the one cause that ends all human suffering. When truly transformative, if it was to change every human heart, it ends the human blight of suffering because how can you allow your brother to starve? How can you not care for the sick? How can we not rise up as Christians and love one another and give to one another when God's given us so much? It is the one thing that changes the human heart. I can't steal from my neighbor if they're my brother, if I'm gonna disobey God. I can't wanna kill someone if I love God and he's asked me not to and he's given me so much. It transforms human society with one simple message. We take this message 
to our neighbors, to our friends. And we start talking about it. And we start introducing it. And we get engaged with this gospel. Now, some of you guys are going, that's great, Greg. I, I, I don't really know how to do that. And that's why we offer opportunities like, uh, like Launchpad at our church. Launchpad is an opportunity for you to learn how you can begin to give the gospel away. You're like, well, Greg, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I know that, and I've been a Christian for a long time. Well, good. How many guys would say you have been a Christian longer than five years? Put your hand up real quick. All of you need to take a, start a launch pad, okay? All of you. Write it down right now. I must t- I'm over five years old as a Christian. I must take a launch pad. I'm not joking. Write it down right now. Oh, come on. I'm your pastor. Write it down. This is your prescription. Because it's been statistically proven that if you've been a Christian longer than five years, your evangelism is probably zero. The passion, somewhere along the lines, you're told, oh, that'll go away. You start hearing some objections, and you're like, oh, I'm going to answer that. Say, oh, I know those people. They'll never receive Jesus. We're fighting the culture wars. We get distracted, or we just get plain American, and it's called busy, right? I don't have time. Launchpad is designed to enable all of us to know how to begin that journey of reaching neighbors and caring for them to give away a message that's free for people to have that radically changes their hearts and lives. I'll tell you what, I love my father-in-law. There are areas in his life that he is, my, he is my mentor in a sense when I watch him. His prayer life is incredible. And I, and I want that prayer life. And as he walks through this stuff, he's been a Christian for, for far longer than I have. And so I was so blown away and humbled when he goes and takes our launch pad course. And it engaged him so that he would go next door to reach out to his neighbor with the gospel who he's known for over a decade. That kind of humility is, is, is a life lesson for me. And, and it tells me there's never a time to stop growing in our faith and to engage things that may be scary for us or what God's called us to do, but we've resisted. Guys, I encourage you, don't ever give up on partnering in the gospel in the sense of being an ambassador no matter how long you've been a Christian. And so I want to encourage you guys to really consider taking that. Pray for each other. When's the last time you heard somebody talking about going to reach your neighbor and you prayed for them? Pray for each other. But then we have our missionaries. They're the ones who, who, who are like crazy, right? They're like, I love telling people about Jesus, so I go across, over to different cultures and tell them. No, actually, if you don't get along with this culture, maybe God designed you for a different one. That's, sort of, you know, that's kind of my problem. I'm just kidding. The, but what if that's the case? What if there was a culture that you engaged in and suddenly you're like, man, I fit these people. This is weird. Because God wants to use you to bring the gospel across a boundary line that otherwise it wouldn't go across. Suddenly you're looking and you're thinking, man, did God really send me over here? Yeah, but when we do that, guys, it, it takes financial need. That's what John is talking about. Look, he says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. That wasn't like standing them up in front of a church and saying, go in a manner worthy of God. Pray for them. No, it was literally help them out financially. They don't get any help from outside of the church, it's saying. And so we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers in the truth. You see, we at Olive Branch, we have about seven full-time missionaries out right now. And um, they're supported by 40%, where the team we formed is supported at 40% of their need by the church budget. That's a big deal. Uh, in, In church world out there, that doesn't happen much. Usually you're like, you want to be a missionary? Go find help. You know, that's kind of how it works out. 
But here we believe in this, we support those that we send out, and why we want to do that is because we want to give them a leg up. We want to get them focused on the mission, but it requires the rest of us to kind of step in and be able to go, hey, I'm willing to help you. And, and praise God you guys have done that. Our, our missionaries are able to be in New York right now, training and meeting with West Africans and getting prepared for their, for their field because you guys have been willing to care for them and bless them in this way. And that's going to continue to happen as time rolls on. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, do this. In fact, what's interesting, when you do that, guys, every West African they connect with, you're a part of. That's not just my words. That's what he says. So that you may be fellow workers of the truth. See, when one of those people enter into heaven, I know they'll know where all the connections was that supported that person who gave them the gospel. It's a team effort. Just as they're praying for us to reach our area, we're praying for them. Just as they're a part of the support for us here, we are their support there. And in that connection, we are one church reaching as far as God allows us to reach. And that's the beauty of what's going on. We partner in this gospel, and it's really our moral obligation. This is what's so frustrating to me. Um, When we talk about this stuff, one of the things that's hard is that as Americans, we don't like oughts. We want to be given choice. But really, John doesn't give us a choice. He's not American, and so I guess we've got to forgive him for this. But verse 8 says, therefore, we ought to support people like these. When you get into the words of ought, it's, it's moral. It's a must. It's you ought or ought not. You must do this. In fact, to the point where he's saying, if you're not partnering, you're in sin. Now, that's hard. But when you think about the amount God has given us, when you think about what he has poured out from eternity, that we might have the opportunity to have all of eternity to know him, to be at peace with God, to walk in a manner where we are encouraging others to live with love, that we can know truth and we can know God. All of this stuff he's poured out, I mean, really, really supporting somebody who's willing to risk their entire life and sell all their stuff to go to another nation doesn't seem like a big deal in comparison. And no wonder it's a moral ought then that lands on our shoulders. Something we all wrestle with. I leave that with you for thought. But the danger is if we don't believe that this is really what's going on, if the gospel isn't actually that powerful. See, if we give up on the truth, we'll end up giving up on evangelism. And that's what John's focus is as he zeroes in in verse 9. He says, guys, or Gaius, I have written something to the church but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephus is a man who suddenly shows up. He's a guy who doesn't seem to approve of apostolic authority, one. And on the other hand, he doesn't like evangelism that comes from the apostles. Say, what kind of weirdness is going on in the first century church when the apostle is still alive and they're going, nope, sorry, dude, we don't listen to you. You know, what's probably going on is that he was saying, we don't have to listen to the apostles. We have Jesus' words. We're going to listen to the Old Testament. We're going to listen to Jesus. We don't need to listen to the apostles. Guys, that's been rehashed. And it's been said in this manner. We are red-letter Christians. Anybody heard that terminology? I'm a red-letter Christian? In essence, what they say is, I only look at the red letters in the the New Testament, the words that Jesus spoke. Otherwise, just ignore the apostles. You don't need them. And I always want to go like, newsflash, dude, the red letters were written by the apostles. (laughs) 
But literally, the movement is to be like, Jesus only, we only follow Jesus' words. Ignore the apostles. And John right here is saying, hello? They don't think I have authority. Guess I'm going to come. I'm going to straighten this all out. I mean, you want to see a crotchety old 90-year-old John show up in your church? When I walk with Jesus, I want to tell you something. You'd be like, write that down. You know, he's like, this guy's got authority. And here's Diatribus Center. I'm going, nah, just ignore him. Stupid apostles. He's even wickedly calling them names, bringing up nonsense about them is what it's saying. This isn't unheard of. You can go to many colleges and many seminaries today that will simply tell you, you don't have to believe in the apostolic truths. What work? Greg, where are the apostolic truths? They're right here. The writings of the apostles are right here, written in your Bible. No, they're not. Yeah, they are. No, no, no. Constantine changed the Bible into 400s. And then the church has been systematically revising their Bible ever since. Look at all the other books out there. You can ignore the books in the Bible. Why did they pick those ones and not these ones? Okay, time out. Liberal and conservative scholars together agree that what we have are as close to the original documents in the scriptures. We just debate about a couple of terms. Guys, you've never, there's never been a time in church history where you have more accurate Bibles. They've not been changed. If you really want to hear all of the argument on where all these other books come from, the late books that were written by another religion called Gnosticism, you can go ahead and take a look at my, the series we have online called Static. And Static will walk you through the argument of why you can trust your Bible and why this is actually very close, as close as we can have ever been to the original writings of the apostles that was agreed upon by the church way before Constantine was even around. And what you have is an awesome opportunity to open up and learn from those who walked with Jesus Christ. And here, and the words that they remember Jesus Christ saying to teach us to live in love and truth. What is powerful about this, though, is that if we start to deny that fact, if we start to say, we don't have to believe that, I, you will watch your evangelism precipitously vanish. Liberal churches that have walked further and further away from the, the idea of the gospel and that Jesus Christ is the only way, is the sacrifice God has given to us to atone for our sins, when they start walking away from that, they don't evangelize. They go help people, and that's good. I don't want us to never not help people. And I think them helping people is awesome, but they definitely can make a poor man rich and watch his soul rot in hell. That's not the call of the church. The call of the church is to bring the message that changes a heart and saves the soul from destruction. And if we don't believe that, you'll watch your own evangelism begin to vanish. It doesn't take much. It starts with just enough doubt that you go, I can't go next door. They might ask me a question that I can't answer. I, I mean, I have these, I'm not sure about this. Until I got it all sure, then I can't go. See, doubt is what will erode your evangelism very quickly. My question is simply this. If you have a question that you think your neighbor knows that you can't answer and that's going to destroy your faith, how strong is your faith? Can I just tell you the truth? There's not been a real big objection that has come up that's new in the last 500 years. The church has pretty much wrestled through all the weird stuff in the text since they've been reading it for over almost 2,000 years now. 
that you can have confidence that you can go talk to people and that there are people and books and available information that can answer the objections raised. And so you do not have to fear that somehow the truth that has been believed by the apostles and all these other people for centuries is not any good anymore. It's irrelevant. It doesn't actually help. There's better ways to... It erodes your evangelism. The more you will study the text, the more you understand the truth of theology, the more you grasp who God is, the more sure you will be that you're able to deliver this information to people. The only thing that stands in the way then is just doing it, which is typically because we're so busy. And I just want to encourage you. That's why Launchpad exists. You know, get get yourself moving. Challenge yourself to get engaged in a way that maybe you never thought you could. And that's really where John ends. He says in this very short book, he says, you are called to stand firm and continue to live it out. Verse 11, beloved, speaking to Gaius, don't imitate evil. In other words, don't imitate what Diotrephus is doing, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And again, he's referring, referencing this good and evil that he's just laid out. So he goes, let me give you an example of the good. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also had our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write in pen and ink. I, I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face-to-face. Note that for all of us who like to text, blog, Facebook, etc., etc. He, he Somehow the apostle likes face-to-face contact. So just an interesting note. Um, peace, peace to you. Be to you. The, the friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. And so he ends his message with this. Guys, let's be those who stand firm in the truth, who welcome and support the missionaries, who are part of the evangelism. Let's stand firm in these things and continue to live it out. He says, let's be like Gaius and Demetrius. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it, isn't that the thing? When I, when I started my faith journey, I had this weird notion in my head as I was reading James. I was like, man, I want to know God so well that, that I, could, I could append this. That I could have wrote this. Because I know who God is and I know what he would say about that situation or this. I wanted to know God that much. In this way, I want to just know, wouldn't it be awesome to know God so well, to live for God in the way the Bible talks about, that the apostle would say, that guy's living it. That guy's got it down. Demetrius has got it down. You want to copy somebody, go see that guy. Isn't that how you want to live your faith? So that somebody, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's an elder, they're like, oh, you, you want to know? You, be, like, be like John. Oh, be like Steve. Be, be like Catherine. You, you want to be like Christ. Let me give you a picture. Go see this person. Now, here's what will happen. If you're really walking that way, Somebody will say, oh, you want to be like that? Go see that guy. And they'll go, hey, they told me to come see you. They said you're like one of the holiest guys watching and be like, no, I'm not. That's what you'll think. I'm not that way. You look at my life. I'm a mess. I don't pray as much as I should. I don't read my Bible. Why would he tell me? Well, you want to meet somebody who should really, who really walks like, go talk to that guy. He'll go over there. Hey, I was told to talk to you. Not me. You know the guy to run away from? When they go, you know, they told me to come talk to you. Oh, I know. Don't go to that guy. That's, there's a paradox when you really walk in the truth and love. You don't really realize you're doing it. You don't really realize it's coming out of your life. But everybody else sees it. And everybody else commends it. That doesn't mean we don't strive for it. That doesn't mean we don't want to be there. But it's amazing to you when it happens. 
And that's what's going on in this. That we would be called to live this out in such a manner that we could be like Pastor Ken Smith. Who? Pastor Ken Smith is an interesting reference in a testimony I just recently heard of a, man, of a woman named um, Rosario Butterfield. Fascinating testimony as she reads it. She wrote a book called um, Un, uh, Thoughts from an Unlikely Convert. She was uh, born and raised in a Catholic home, went to college, got involved in the LGBT community and became an activist, got her, was a tenured professor of literature. Um, and she was in the middle of this, uh, the promise keepers came to town. Oh, them promise keepers, making problems. So she wrote a huge article why these people are misogynist bigots and all this stuff and, and accusing all this stuff in her article. She got all this hate mail from the church and all the support letters from the LGBT community. And she would file them. And finally it came down one day, she got one letter she couldn't file. And it was from this man, Pastor Ken Smith. And it didn't blast her, and it didn't support her. It just asked questions. Why did you say this? How can you support that? I was just curious about this, just curious about that. She threw it away, and then she pulled it out of the trash. She didn't know what to do with it, and finally she just met the guy. And a three- to four-year relationship began with her and him and his, his wife. And, and, he, and she said in her testimony, she's like, I don't get it. He never told me the gospel directly. He never invited me to receive Jesus. He never even invited me to church. She goes, was I the reject? What's going on here? But then she began a study of the word of God. She began a study of how we interpreted the word of God. And she started reading the Bible on her own. And she started understanding what the Bible was saying. She started wrestling with the, what the word of God said. Hanging with this man who would just answer questions and was so kind to her and invited her into his life and her, her, his, uh, his wife's life. And in this relationship, suddenly she came to this day when she was actually in his church listening to the sermons and was singing one of the songs and stood up and was singing with the congregation about how the Bible, the word of God was her own in this hymn, and she realized, I'm lying in church. Can't do that. And in a wrestling match, she came home wrestling with, what is this thing? Why can't I let go of this word? Why is it so wrestling with me? And she came with this sudden realization in the middle of the sermon when the sermon said, it's not knowing that comes first, it's obedience. And from the obedience and the experience comes the knowing. And she said, I realized I was a thinker. I expected that in all areas of my life an understanding came before obedience. I wanted to be the judge over the Bible, not the one to be judged. In that moment, she came to realize that she couldn't stand over the Bible in this aloof, I know what it's saying. I can interpret it from my Western, American, Northeastern, LGBT activist perspective. She had to realize that it was God who was speaking to her through the word, and she, re she had to repent. Now, she didn't repent of, quote, homosexuality. That, that went away, but she had to repent of pride. She said that was the root of all her sin. He walked into her house, and she had pride this, and pride that, and pride parade pictures, and pride parade mugs, and pride that. And she's like, if I needed a sign, God put it in my face. She repented and she came to Christ and lost everything. Now she's a homeschooling mom. She's living out there somewhere. 
Now, that's great, and it's awesome, but I tell you, for this reason, guys, there is no mountain so high, there is no heart that is so hard that the truth of the Word of God and the teaching of the apostles cannot get to and cannot help change if we are willing to let it speak for itself. That if we're not going to believe this book, our evangelism is going to evaporate. And John says, don't. But trust that God has given you the truth. And you know how you defend the truth, guys? C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's like a lion. You just let it out of the cage. I think it's time as a church to stand firm on the word of God. Trusting God has not lied to us and has given us what is necessary to make the greatest difference in this world. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? And that great news comes to this room today. God, I want you to hear me if, if you've not been one of those people that has heard that God loves you. Yes, we have sin. Yes, we have this stuff. And yes, God will judge that one day. But right now, he has sent a message into the world that his son, Jesus Christ, has come to bear your sins and forgive you. That he died on the cross so that you could have access to God. He rose from the dead to give you a new life. That if you want to be reborn, you want to be born again, that you would receive this simple gift of his grace. You don't pay him back. You just receive it. Because he loves you. And he comes into your life. And he becomes your Lord and he leads you. It's that simple. And maybe you've tried all the other routes. You've, you've experimented with all the other things and it's given you debt and pain. But here... I want you to hear this. God loved you. He's given you forgiveness. And he offers it to you now. If you're serious to consider that, I'll give you two options. First, if you're a thinker, go ask your questions with an open heart and open mind to receive answers about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, maybe God's speaking to you right now. He's telling you, you need to be forgiven. Come, be in his kingdom. If that's him speaking to you right now and you need to receive this good news of his forgiveness, then do so right now. Let me know by just putting your hand up. I'll walk you, I'm gonna walk with you through a prayer and where you're saying, yes, God, that's me. I need to be forgiven. If that's you, just let me know. Slip that hand up just where I can see it. start right here. Start with this, what's called confession. Just lay out to God the things that you know you've done wrong. And this is an image that you're building a mountain of this stuff in front of you, and then you're going to move into the second phase. You're going to do what's called repentance. Turn away from that sin and that way of life and turn to God. Ask him to forgive you. Tell him that you trust that Jesus bore your sins on the cross and that he's given you new life and ask him to make you alive through that resurrection. Ask him to come into your life and now lead you through the rest of it as you make him your Lord. And Father, for anyone that is praying that prayer and working through that with you, I pray that you would give them that new life. That you'd empower them to live with you and to know you that we would celebrate together what you are doing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.